Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of people who study computational neuroscience. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. I'm Connor. And we have a special guest for this episode. Joe, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Joe. Yep, and Joe is with us um, because... On our optogenetics podcast, we got into an ill-informed discussion about patent law and who can patent what and who has patented what. And uh, Joe is here to kind of clarify some ideas about patents in science and their use and motivation and these sorts of things. So, Joe, do you want to give us a little bit on uh, your background in terms of why you're a a bit more experienced in patent and law than, than we are? Yeah, so I'm a neuroscience graduate student at Columbia right now in my fifth year. But before I got here, I was uh, at law school at the University of Pennsylvania. And I had a patent law course and I worked at a law firm uh, during the summer where I worked on a very important patent for a bolt for a server rack that is in a Facebook um, server farm somewhere. So these bolts are important because, of course, earthquakes in California and these server racks have to be stable somehow. So uh, I guess Facebook came up with a kind of creative way to do this, and they found that was eligible for a patent, and they went and applied for that. They probably patented a lot of things, and this was just one of them. Um, And maybe not the most exciting thing that they patented, but for a summer associate at a small patent law boutique that was the right uh, level of uh, difficulty for for somebody to take on like me. So cool. So I mean, you've you've had experience both with neuroscience and uh, and law. So you kind of come here sort of qualified to talk to us about science and and innovation as well as as uh, the legal uh, ramifications of those developments. Right. So I never took the patent bar, um, but that didn't preclude me from working on patents and uh, writing or editing patents, um, doing what are called prior art searches while I was at the law firm. Um, And after I finished law school, I did some academic writing in the law. Uh, So I've done a fair amount of research in, in law, although patent law didn't end up becoming my primary area. I'm kind of more focused in on a neuroscience implications for the criminal law, but I will try to do my best here to conjure up some of the knowledge that I acquired while I was in law school and in my brief stint as a patent lawyer. Cool. Excellent. So, I mean, I think from our perspective, we're coming, you know, mostly at it from biology, but I mean, patents in biology are just relatively more recent than, you know, patents more broadly, that is, is like biotechnology's somewhat recent development. Yeah, I mean, patents have kind of been around or some sense of patents has been around for about 200 years and biotechnology patents are really something that has come up up in the last uh, 50 years or so and and specifically biotechnology patents are rising from uh, university funded uh, or or university uh, led government funded research is is a very new thing um, 
from the 1980s on, and so you can kind of shed light on using that as a case example. Yeah, I just want to um, kind of motivate our interest in this. I don't know what people would assume that scientists know about patents. I think from my perspective as a scientist, it's kind of like you're not supposed to think about patents. You're not supposed to think about kind of the industry worth of anything that you're doing because you're doing it for the purpose of pure science and pure research, and you're not trying to make money off of it. So I think to most scientists, maybe they assume that research, basic research that's done at academic institutions doesn't get patented or something like that, or only the people who are leaving academia to start a company would patent anything. And so um, I think it's interesting from the perspective of a scientist and, and from people generally to, to know like kind of the facts about what's actually happening in science and what patents are, are occurring and, and what they're being used for and that kind of thing. And specifically, I mean, what is the subject matter? I mean, so again, I mean, we're not, we're not even experts or anything on what's patented more broadly, but I mean, in, in biology or maybe the, you know, I guess what we're going to talk about today a bit is like, what are some of the first things to be patented in, in biology? And, you know, how is the subject matter of biology different or the same as other kinds of subject matter that can be patented? Yeah. So I think that a lot of the, um, well, first, I, I guess I would just backtrack and say that of all the areas of law that I have studied, I think the misconceptions about patent law, um, principally about the people to whom patent law most directly applies, are are more in number and in degree than in any other area of law, if I could say that, in the sense that if you are in finance or you are a hedge fund or you're um, operating in some field, you probably know quite well the laws that apply to you. If you're trying to, let, let's say, run a business, you know the, the legal exemptions. But in the patent law, I don't really think that scientists have really much of a grasp of the patent law. And I don't think that the legislators who design the patent law really necessarily understand what motivates Scientists, at least at a basic science level, I think most of the patent law is catered towards um, large firms, the big pharmaceutical companies, and things like that. So it's um, maybe a bit incongruous for us to be having this discussion as opposed to like a podcast on startups or a podcast that's geared towards like pharmaceutical company executives. But um, nevertheless, I mean, I think it's nice that, that we talk about it and so, sort of clear up some of the questions that maybe some graduate students and postdocs who might be inventing something at some point are having right now. So to, just to start, I mean, I'm, how do patents affect us in terms of what other people have patented? So uh, if, if other people have patented things, how as scientists are we able to use what other people have patented you know, for some sort of like fair use style, you know, terms, or or is it the case that we can't? Right. So that was be that would be one of the, the the kind of clearest examples of a misconception or or sort of uh, some confusion that I think that a lot of scientists have. Uh, it's that when something gets patented, it's not really like applicable to me, the graduate student, or me, the postdoc, doing my like humble work in my lab, patents are the scope of big companies and kind of people who want to commercialize their research. But that's not really true. And, and uh, there have been uh, 
kind of a sequence of legal cases that have eroded what is called the research exemption. And so if you had been doing research using something that is patented, let's say in your basement or your garage, that was kind of okay. You can use something that's patented to tinker around with it or to kind of see um, you know, what, what the realm of possibilities are with that invention, how you might improve on it or create something new using that invention. So to make it more um, concrete, you know, let's say that you have a you know, basement in which you can do biological research. And so you grow some cell lines. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily be a basement. It could be something like GenSpace or something like sure. this. Sure. Yeah. Like, the, yeah, these nonprofit so like a... yeah, biohacker spaces and things like that. So uh, it's, <laughs> that, that actually gets you into a different realm. Um, so let's distinguish the guy doing some work in his basement as so, a hobby. I'm just concerned about a guy like dissecting a rat in his basement. Yeah, <laughs> generally, yeah. I mean, but I guess he yeah. Can. So then there's a whole other like. That's why I'm I'm, I'm saying like a cell line, so mm-hmm. we don't have to get into like animal welfare and things like that. But uh, we could get even more generic and say, you know, you downloaded some. Um, program that's patented and you want to use that program to, uh, I don't know, make your own software. And so, you know, you're going to use some output from that program to get something for your own, uh, your own software. So, you know, in any way, if you try to use someone else's patent in the process of your own kind of curious endeavors or your, your process of discovering something new, if you are anything but a guy working or a girl working in your basement, it, you're going to have some problem in that there's no real research exemption, practically speaking, that will apply to you that you can point to and say, look, I'm a nonprofit or look, I'm just a graduate student in a lab at Columbia. There's really nothing that, that, that you can uh, use for protection. But sorry, sorry. Before we do that, like, what would it mean to? Um, I mean, if a company is using a is using some patented invention to create a product and then they're selling it, it's clear that people, I think, understand the idea that they might want you might want to have that uh, company have to pay royalties to the patent holder. But in the case of this guy in his basement just tinkering around, like, in what way does a patent even apply? Right. I mean, you can be a university lab that never actually gets a patent on anything, but because you are in the business of doing research and you used this patented thing to get yourself a you know modest paper in some scientific journal, well, then you were doing business uh, and your business is related to this patent in some way. So you should have gotten what will we can talk about this uh, license to use that patented material and so that's that's distinct from somebody who really has no proper business with the product of that patent or that that sequence of patents so if somebody who is their their main job is that they're a teller at a bank but in their spare time they like to experiment with some other thing, yeah, that's not their main business. So they can use that patented material to do whatever kind of 
fun and curious, interesting things that they want to do for themselves. But if you're a university or if you're a hacker space, even if you're a nonprofit hacker space, if you are generating any kind of business uh, return from using patented material, you will need to get an exclusive, uh, a, sorry, some sort of license or permission from the patent holder to so, use that material. And if it's like, if you're doing research and you don't make money off of it, but you're, you're still like, whatever your accomplishments are, what would be the consequences to you? If someone, if someone sued you for some sort of patent infringement where you were using patented material without a license as a researcher, what would the consequences be? It would Yeah. So the practical implications for somebody in a lab who is using patented material is it's, it's very hypothetical in a sense because it very rarely happens. But if you want a, an example, uh, Maddie versus Duke University, M-A-D-E-Y, was a case that came before the federal circuit, which is the federal district court of, if you are suing over a patent. So if you get sued in your, in your state over some federal law, typically you'll go to the federal circuit that corresponds to the region that you live in. But if it's a patent issue, then you go to the federal circuit court of appeals, and that's the specific circuit for, for patents. But anyway, um, in this particular case, this doctor, this professor, Dr. Maddie, had uh, a science lab, and he moved his science lab. And even after moving his science lab, the university where he had previously been, Duke University, continued to use the lab equipment. And Dr. Maddie sued to stop them from using that equipment because some of it was patented material. And he felt that they should be able to continue using things that he had developed, that he was an inventor on. And so it wasn't that he recovered millions and billions of dollars, but he can join and get an injunction against the person who was, the phrase is practicing the art or practicing the invention. So if you, you know, if you, Josh, are in your lab or uh, doing something and you're making use of a patented material and it, it becomes uh, known to the inventor that inventor can probably write you a polite letter telling you to stop or ask them for permission and maybe pay some kind of fee to them so that you can continue using it or they'll just go straight to court and get you to stop doing that thing. And if you do continue to use it, then you will have to pay. So I want to talk about kind of how the fact that, that this happened, that someone left their university and kind of sued it for continuing to use their materials, how that lines up with kind of our ethics as scientists. Because I feel like, to me, when I hear that story, I think, oh, that guy's kind of a, you know, yeah. a douche. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, yeah, so to, to that, I just want to add also that... Um, I don't know. I mean, when you think of law in a kind of abstract sense of these kind of very rational sets of rules and rational decision makers who are all kind of um, interacting with those rules, that's not really the sense that I have. And I don't think that from my experience, that's the case. I think law is a, in, in, in these courtroom contexts, it's a very emotional thing and a lot of times who wins or loses happens to be like the most sympathetic person or the least sympathetic person and something that 
turns into a legal battle would have just been something that happens in some letters, but because of some emotional situation or two people get heated up over something and it becomes now a legal case that we're reading. Uh, so, so I think that this is a really rare um, situation. And in most cases, I think the parties kind of resolve things amicably and scientists, of course, have all of these kind of implicit understandings of how to share and use material with each other. And I think, you know, 99% of the time that's going to prevail. And then only in these really rare instances will you have to like take recourse. So, I mean, let's just clarify. So, I mean, we, we came to this conversation in part because in, in previous discussions, we've talked about the general sense that scientists are producing things using taxpayer dollars. And there's sort of a, a, a consensus implicitly amongst a lot of scientists, I think, that we want to share the results of our science. Uh, this isn't like completely true for every little detail, it seems like. I mean, there's clearly some heterogeneity among scientists as to how strongly they feel this way. And certainly it depends a little bit on what context people are in. But I mean, when people do science, I mean, a lot of that is about sharing the ideas that they produce uh, and producing good ideas and sharing them. Yeah. So I, I mean, maybe just to sort of rephrase Grace's question a little bit, how does the idea that you would enforce patent infringement against other academics differ maybe from the idea that you would enforce uh, against patent infringement that a company has? So like if someone else, if, you, if you're an academic and you write down something and, and patent it and it's a cool idea, you know, is there maybe a, a different attitude or how different is the attitude uh, that, that you would have to other academics who weren't trying to make a profit off of it, but were just trying to subsequently improve upon it or use it in order to, to find out new scientific things versus a company that was trying to make money off of your idea without kind of coming to you and, and you know, involving you in that. Right. So one thing to remember in these situations is that when you are a university professor or a university researcher, whatever capacity, you invent something, it, you don't typically have the sole right to that invention. There are examples uh, where this isn't the case, but at a large research university, if you're an inventor, uh, you have probably signed some contract that says that anything that you invent, uh, will you will tell Columbia's tech transfer office or the tech transfer office of the UC or the tech transfer office at Stanford uh, about that invention. And at that point, the university will what's called prosecute the patent, which is like a scary sounding way to say that they will apply for a patent on your behalf. <laughs> and, that's what it means. <laughs> and they're going to do this like with some alacrity because it's quite important that your patent be filed before you go and tell all of your colleagues about it and then they have the uh, opportunity to maybe file for that patent on, on their own. But in any case, so there is a lot that stands between you, the researcher, uh, the original inventor, and the, the organization that would be responsible for trying to enforce your patent. So you may be in the situation where you want to share and you want uh, other people to be able to use whatever you've invented, but your university may have you know, a different uh, notion about how that's going to be done. And you know, that's almost always, I think, it's going to be 
kind of agreed upon and there's not going to be like major conflicts and i've never heard of a major conflict between a research professor who's an inventor and the tech transfer office where you know the the inventor wanted to you know basically uh gave away the the thing and the the tech transfer office refused to so it's kind of a thing where you know if you're a professor and you invent something you don't have to go to the tech transfer office uh, but if you want to pursue your own patent on that thing, then, then you typically do. So can I just clarify? So, you know, you're working in your lab and you discover some sort of tool that could be really helpful. For example, like the, the podcast episode that started this discussion was the optogenetics one. So you discover optogenetics and you make it work. And do you first go to your tech transfer office to apply for the patent or do you submit it as a paper and publish the paper? Like what's the time difference between when other researchers know about it via a paper versus when you're getting the patent? Yeah. So the question of when you need to apply, it's something that's kind of evolved in 2011, uh, the president signed into effect this Lehigh Smith, uh, sorry, Leahy Smith, uh, American Invents Act. And in that act, they made some minor changes to the patent law, Title 35. But uh, one of the big uh, modifications that was made to the Patent Act was to go from what America had previously, which was a first to invent uh, right to, to patents and switch to a first to file. So what this practically means is previously, if you had a, an invention and you just didn't file a patent on it, but you invented it and some time passed and then someone else also figured that thing out and, and then invented it and then they filed for a patent prior to this change in the law, that person who had first invented it would be the one who gets the patent as long as they can prove that they had documented that invention in their lab notebooks or, or, or some other way, and that they had been kind of diligently working towards getting the, the invention into a state where they could like put out an application for the patent. Now we're in a system where it's the first inventor to file who is going to get the patent. So now when you if you have some kind of invention you really need to i guess get it to the patent office as soon as you can because you won't be able to say well look after the fact i did do this work before and so i should have rights to this patent it's really going to be about who got to the patent office first so i mean this is this is a very different climate now i mean so i don't know the exact timeline but it seems like I mean, the number of sort of biological or biotechnology-related patents is presumably going up. We, in sort of in preparation for this discussion, read this article about Axel patents, which were in the early 80s. So, I mean, this is particularly uh, fitting for us to be talking about since he's a you know, Nobel Prize-winning professor at Columbia. So, I mean, when he registered his patents uh, with, with his co-inventors, the, these patents were it was somewhat novel for biological patents at all to be to be being patented. So this was the first kind of example of somebody making use of this Bay-Dole Act provision in, in the patent law that says that if you received federally funded 
or, or federal funds to conduct your research, you as an individual or your institution can apply for a patent and you get that patent and you are the inventor on that patent. Prior to 1980, any research that was done with federal funding, the product of that research would just go to the federal government. And so yeah, we're going we're gonna to definitely want to talk about this issue of where the money should go for royalties. But, but specifically, I, I mean, this topic is, is somewhat interesting because, you know, Grace was, was asking about whether uh, you should publish or, or patent first. In this case, my understanding was that the publishing was done first. People kind of were interested in this. And then subsequently, Columbia decided to start enforcing these patents for a technique that became popularly used. Yeah, that's like right. So th this is against this kind of, you know, we're in this backdrop of uh, a major Supreme Court decision that had been issued in, in 1980 which is people, if you ever study patent law, you, this is a, a case that you hear about a lot. It's Chakrabarty versus Diamond. And in that case, uh, getting to the question of what can you patent, uh, the inventors there had discovered a Pseudomonas putida that could break down crude oil. And so the Supreme Court... So specifically, Court, this was like some genetically modified bacterium or something like this? It wasn't genetically modified, as far as I know, but it was that they had found an organism okay. that can do this thing. And so it's a they, cool thing. They isolated it, prepared it in some way, modified it from nature and some, and they wanted it to break down crude oil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, the idea that, Oh, how can you, you know, patent an organism is, is, uh, is, a, is life, our organisms, uh, patentable subject matter. That was kind of like, a question that the Supreme Court decided on in 1980. And it's not that other countries work the same way. For example, in Canada, uh, they, they come to a different conclusion. But in the United States, it was kind of like we're really uh, open to the idea of patenting even kind of biotechnical advances or even uh, different organisms that have kind of a practical application. So uh, that patent held, and then the Bay-Dole Act, which came around that same time, and that just allowed inventors to kind of take more control over, over the inventions that they, that they produce and be able to extract some kind of financial benefit from having those inventions, and principally to have the, the university that, that where the research is taking place also uh, get quite a large financial incentive for encouraging that kind of research. So one thing to remember about, about this is it's still federally funded. And so kind of to anticipate the question of, well, what about the taxpayers and what, what's the benefit that they get if Columbia University is drawing in all of this money? Well, the Bay-Dole Act has this kind of unique provision or actually a couple provisions. And one of them is this kind of compulsory license. And so we haven't talked about this yet, but if you're a patent holder, you will want people to, you know, buy the right to do that thing. So let's say in the example of channel rhodopsin, there are several labs, uh, UNC Vector Core or Penn Vector Core, who have these license agreements with uh, Stanford University where they can reproduce these uh, channel rhodopsin viruses in different uh in different vectors and different uh, ways and sell those to people. And, and this is because Stanford 
holds the patent for the optogenetics, the, the this channel rhodopsin, which Carl Dieseroth created while at Stanford. That's why Stanford owns that patent? Right, that's right. So Stanford owns that patent because if you're at Stanford, you have to sign a patent agreement, which uh, probably now says that whatever you you know, patent at Stanford, if you did like a substantial amount of, or even some amount of work using Stanford uh, facilities, then you have to assign the right of ownership to Stanford University, and then their tech transfer office is going to be kind of in the driver's seat as far as it, uh, uh, as far as it concerns uh, who, who gets to license and and what the kind of royalties and uh, the fee structures are going to be for that uh, particular invention. So in the case of General Rodopsin, right, you have these people who are probably happier than Carl Dyseroth to put these, put these General Rodopsin constructs into a variety of different viruses and then, you know, have the viruses be produced at that facility. It's, it's a laborious and kind of like, uh, tedious thing to do. So rather than having Carl Dyseroth have to do that at Stanford and sell it to or some of, grad students and postdocs and techs, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right, to, to do it for you know the thousands of labs that are probably using Chernobyl now, it's easier for Stanford to say, hey, let's just give it to the you know highest bidders or you know in that case I don't think it was the highest bidders. It was probably something where they thought about it and they said you know here's this thing, you know, it's a Bay-Dole Act kind of invention because we're getting public money um, to to have discovered it. So in a way, you know, we can't be like completely uh, greedy about how much we charge for it. And so that's why you can get, you know, 100 microliters of the Chernodopsin virus in for like 200 bucks. And that doesn't have to be the case. So, yeah, is that a lot? We don't. We don't. <laughs> Sorry, also, what, this, what was this course licensing thing? So, the Baydol Act has these provisions where. Yeah, where you have to, like, give the government a license to use your invention. The government. The government, but not other. But not other institutions. Right, but not other. And so, is, is, wait, is $200 per, you know, vial of this? Uh, is that is that reasonable price? Is that close to that cost? Is yeah, this... so, I mean, when we do these viral injections, we can. For, for one mouse, we'll inject one, you know, two microliters of the virus. So 100 microliters of virus gives you like 50 mice to inject. And for $200, if you can get 50 animals out of it, you could you know get like four cohorts of an N equals 10. You got half of So, I mean, this is very inexpensive for a, a mainstream science lab. I understand that. Right. I'm just kind of trying to get a sense of whether profit is being made off of this or if this is kind of at cost. So like $200 for... Uh, like a crucial part of a scientific experiment is obviously not very expensive I right. think, for scientists. Right? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really not. Uh, they're really not going to extract like a huge profit out of scientists. But when you go to purchase these Chernodopsin constructs from Penn Vector Core or UNC, you have to, as the PI, submit like a fair amount of disclosure about what you're doing with okay. that channel Rhodopsin. And that kind of prevents like a big in, like industrial lab that's going to use that channel Rhodopsin to like test out a bunch of drugs or, you know, find out a pathway that they could then manipulate with some pharmaceutical or, or medical intervention. So is, is, make, is this like, essentially, yeah, is this essentially to make, so like, I mean, in the, when we read the, the article about 
Axel, right? It sounded like they went after companies. I say went after, I mean, this is, I guess, for now, a, a value-neutral way. But they went, they went after companies that were using the methods that had been published and, and developing things that were, were profitable based on that methodology. Yeah. Here, the idea would be that if people are submitting what they have to do, it makes it very easy for the, comp- the, 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 the universities involved to you know, track down companies that may be making a profit off of these methods so that they can extract additional royalties from them. I mean, is that, is that kind of the motive? Or? Yeah, I, like my intuition suggests that if you are the tech transfer office at some big-name university and you're going to file a patent infringement, it's probably going to be against somebody with deep pockets. If you are an inventor and you're going to file a suit against some other inventor or some other university, there might be a different motive there. Um, it could be some disagreement or spite, or maybe you're concerned that they're going to you know, get into some research space that you kind of don't want to have to worry about being scooped doing. Um, but I think you know, the most common thing, and this isn't even very common, is going to be that the university, uh, as you know, through its tech transfer office, is going to try to um, get some remedy for patent infringement from yeah a large, large, large company that's pulling in like hundreds of millions of dollars on on something that you that you patented at the university. So when Stanford licenses, um, say, channel adoption related technologies to and the idea is that the there's this cheap channel that kind of gets set up for research scientists to be able to use this at a reasonable price, and then you might want to sort of get more money out of a big pharmaceutical company that was using them. But like, the idea is that they're doing that out of a sense of, like, goodwill, or, like, is that the idea? I, I mean, it's really hard to know, like, what their motivations are, but, yeah, presumably, you don't want to get a reputation as kind of, like, a shark that's, you know, you've got your invention, but you're going to, like, extract as much money as you can from your, you know, fellow scientist it's i think that you know nobody wants that to be like the predominant climate and there are people who have you know larger pools of 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 kind of financial resources that will probably be also interested in your patent and you know if you want to you can extract money from from those people but i think it goes to kind of what is even the purpose of having a patent system. I mean, we don't necessarily have to have a patent system. Uh, we could imagine an alternative situation where we don't have a patent system. And, you know, instead of channel adoption being something that is publicly available out there and, you know, you have the, the instructions basically in this patent application for making your own channel adoption if you wanted to, what Carl Dyseroth could have done is invent channel Rodopsin and say, I have this thing and uh, it allows me to use light to control how you know, neurons fire. You just trust me that it works. I'm going to show you in these scientific papers that it works, but I'm not going to tell you how to get it. I'm not going to tell you how to make it. I'm not going to tell you, you know, that much about it. Just trust me that I have it. And, you know, that's, he would never have had to apply for a patent. And I think the, you know, the, the, the motivation for having a patent system is that we want to encourage people who have these kind of creative sparks of you know, brilliance or, or genius to share with the public that invention so that other people can, can also um, practice 
and, and use that invention. It seems very counter, though, like for someone to come up with something that would ostensibly be of use to a large community, you would imagine they would, would want to share it. I mean, so like going, going back to sort of maybe some of the, the so, social or, or ethical implications, I, I'm briefly, there's, uh, as an aside, I mean, there's a lot of money that's involved, right? I mean, the Axel patents, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, almost a billion. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, there's lots of money that, that could be, be gathered out of this. But given that the, the funding for a lot of this research comes from taxpayer dollars, Maybe, you know, instead of having a law that says that you're obligated or encouraged to patent, you could at least imagine there would be a law that would say something more along the lines of, if you got research dollars for this, it should go totally to the public. Yeah. I mean, this is hypothetical. You could imagine that that would be the sort of side on which our society would have opted. Yeah. I mean, it's a funny kind of thing, right, in pharmaceuticals, because like Axel and Co. patent some invention, which then gets used to make a whole a huge array of different uh, drugs, treatments. Um, and then they get a lot of money, and Colombia then gets you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over a couple of decades or a decade or so. And that money is coming from the pharmaceutical companies who are making a lot of money because they're selling their drugs for a lot of money and whatever, you know. And then in the US, right? I mean, it sends people, people pay a lot of money for drugs. Money. Yeah. It's kind but of I weird. Think... This is federal funding for the. It's just a strange. Yeah, it's kind of federal funding for the R&D for the pharmaceutical industry. And then the pharmaceutical industry pays back Columbia a bit, which Columbia can then use that money for research facilities and that kind of thing. But I think, from what I understand, the, the motivation for patents and the idea that they can actually spur innovation and increase the speed of things is that the pharmaceutical co pharmaceutical company would not start producing that drug if they feared that other companies could also produce it. And so you need the idea to be something that they can own in like a semi-exclusive way for them to feel comfortable producing it and offering it, it as a product. Does that seem... Yeah, possible? so this is, again, I think part, partly speaking to this question of you have a, a lot of legislators who don't really have much understanding of the R&D process or even the economics of creating and selling pharmaceutical drugs. And they're kind of trying to figure out, and this is the purpose of lobbyists and stuff, right? So they're going to be like, well, we need this. And we have this empirical evidence that suggests that, you know, if we didn't have patents, then, you know, this is what the landscape of, of drugs would look like. And so, you know, I think it's it's roughly arrived upon that, yeah, we should continue to allow patents to operate in this way because maybe this is this is the best way that uh, we can kind of incentivize pharmaceutical companies to make the drugs. But of course, then you know, like you were saying, you have these kinds of things ha happen where uh, pharmaceuticals become really expensive, and so. At least with the Bay Dole Act, the government retains this sort of strange thing called a march-in right, where if you are not really using the, the, the invention that you have patented, then the government can force you to license it out to people who will use it. So let's say in the Chanrodopsin example, again, Carl Dyseroth invented Chanrodopsin, applied for a patent. And then, you know, never gave a license to anyone to use it and never used it himself. And then we just moved on to, you know, G-Camp or, you know, some other 
biological thing. And the whole world would have missed out on Channel Robson and all the discoveries that have been enabled by it. Well, the government could then come in and say, look, Carl Dyseroth, Stanford, like you have this invention. We think it would be useful to people. You have to let people use it. And you'll, we'll come up with a way that you could be compensated for it. Do you know any of like the... Like how they determine if it's been too long or anything like that, or you know, is it? Oh, it's it's. I think it's really a, a kind of a subjective thing, and it it you know, be some interagency discussion, and of course, like a look at you know where the field is and where it's headed, and that that's probably not something that you know it's it's within the realm of the executive branch, so you know it's it's very much like dependent on who's in who's in the White House and what their priorities are and where the... A lot of this sounds, though, weird even because, like, if something isn't popular, you wouldn't know that you're missing out on something. I mean, so, like, a lot of this becomes popular because people actually... I mean, in science, people want the things that they develop. I mean, a lot of this kind of feels weird, right? Because in science, you want the things you develop to become widely used. So most people are, are more on the other side of this, like, encouraging their peers to try what they've done because it adds to their reputation, increases the ability for them to like build new things that other people will use again in the future. Right? Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I really would like encourage everyone to imagine if, you know, you didn't have patents and you didn't have a tech transfer office and you as a scientist just worked in a much like more secretive way, you know, I'm like, I'm saying this is hypothetical, but I, I know people who kind of do work like this and it's, you know, interesting and, kind of like query why this trend or this kind of tendency develops, but people do like to keep secrets about what they're working on. And so if you invented something that enables you to do something really cool, like control the, you know, the voltage across a neuronal membrane, uh, you might want to just keep that a secret and publish like 50 papers and you make yourself sure, yeah, like, that, that does uh, seem to happen too. a legacy. I would say though, Carl Dieseroth did patent it and other people use it, and he has still published 50 papers or more <laughs> on this stuff. Right, right. So, you know, it's an interaction between you know how great the invention is. Maybe if you have a less great invention, you get 50 papers um, before you tell anyone, and then no one else really cares that much about it. But in, in Carl Dieseroth's case, it seems to have like universal application to many different labs in many different areas. I want to just go back to something that you touched on before. The If you work at a university and you have this invention and then the university holds the patent and so they get funds from it, um, but then the, the research was actually usually federally funded, and so what does the government get from the patent? And so they don't get direct money from it, but they do get the ability to use it without kind of the blessing of the university. They could just any government agency can use any patent that was that has come from federally funded research. Is that right? Right. And they still have to pay like some reasonable royalty fee. So, you know, they get to kind of negotiate that in a way that Pfizer would, for example. So if you're Pfizer and you want to use Channel Robson, well, then you're kind of at the, the, the mercy of Stanford to like kind of decide what you're going to pay. If you're the government, because of the Bay-Dole Act provisions, well, the government gets a little bit more like bargaining power and leverage saying, look, this is publicly funded research and we, you know, feel like we have a, a, a chunk, we deserve like a slice of the pie. And so you got to give it to us and you got to give it to us at a reasonable price. And that's, that's quite unique because, you know, they don't have to be able to do that. Uh, 
if if Beidou didn't exist, you know, you would really just have kind of a transfer of money from the from the public into you know these universities, and you know. You, you might still get some kind of like trickle-down benefits because, you know, you'd have different drugs and pharmaceuticals that people could then go and buy at the store and maybe get treated for cancer. And that's great for the public, even if, you know, there's no financial uh, connection back to so the public. I, wanted, I just want to clarify. So, I mean, it sounds like, Joe, from your perspective, as far as I can tell, you, you kind of think that the way the system works is reasonably good. And I'm not necessarily coming in with a perception that it isn't. But I just want to kind of go through and see if all the players in this are being sort of treated well. So like, there's like taxpayers, there's the government, there's the inventors, and there's the university. And I don't know, I think that's probably most of the things that we're like aware of as like the major players in this, right? Right. And so, I mean, on some level, the taxpayers are paying for something. The government then doles out the money. Someone at a university gets that grant money, and they can do research, and they develop something. And then the university has some clause that this person has already signed that allows them to get a rel- rel- rather large component of the, the profits that would come from, from that if, if some profits arise from that. And then so, you know, I guess there's also companies that we haven't like. So there's, that's another kind of participant. And so, you know, for whom is this reasonable and for whom is this not reasonable? Yeah. So in, in line with with that kind of like what are the incentives and what are the kind of deterrents for, for all the parties involved? It's, you know, there comes the question of like, who's going to be motivated to act if things were not this way. I mean, you have taxpayers that are compelled to pay taxes. Um, but then, you know, you have people who kind of have volition in this process. So companies, they have volition about what they're going to develop and inventors and science uh, scientists who work in research labs, they have volition. They can choose whether or not to take that publicly. I mean, maybe these are basic points. But so, like, yeah. I mean, from, from the inventor standpoint, I think you might think, oh, well, oh, the university's taking a lot of money from them. But actually, I think the university's getting a big share. The, the professors have a fairly comfortable position. They get to do research, and then they don't actually have to, like, do the hard work of sort of prosecuting uh, the patent, if that's the right word, or, or defending yeah, yeah, the yeah. patent. yeah. Um, so the university takes that responsibility upon themselves. I mean, and yeah, in the example of those axle patents, like they got a decent amount of fraction of the overall. Yeah, so the scientists do get part of it, a, a smaller part than the university. And I, I feel like for most scientists, like the the exact size that they're getting from it wouldn't be a big motivating factor as to whether like they do interesting research and come up with these things. I mean, you have enough motivation in science to be doing something that people will find interesting and useful. Especially for these kinds of excellent people, they can always, they can always go to a pharmaceutical company and probably get, and get like consulting fees as well or something. Yeah, but yeah, so I mean, it seems like from the university and from the professor inventor kind of standpoint, this seems like a very reasonable system. Uh, I'm, I'm not clear yeah. on from the taxpayer and from corporations. I mean, the government's doing yeah. something that's sort of facilitating this dynamic, I guess. Like, taxpayers would never directly, I think, mostly benefit from the from the inventions. I mean, insofar as there are taxpayers who work at big corporations, they're sort of benefiting. But, like, the, like the money isn't I, – I don't know exactly, you know, what chunk of the money is coming from where in terms of taxpayer dollars. But I'm, I'm imagining, like – sort of your average taxpayer, the benefit they would see from this research is having affordable access to it. 
Right. Right. And so it seems like they're not getting that. And and big corporations presumably are benefiting this from this because essentially taxpayers are footing some of the bill for the research that enables those companies. I mean, we could view that as like, that's what a society does, you know, like corporations are enabled, like we have roads and corporations are enabled because they can use roads that are publicly funded. Yeah. So this is, you know, a question that I think different countries, different governments kind of approach differently in America has a very, I wouldn't say it's pro-business, but it's not so intuitively directly back to the taxpayer, uh, back to the nation. And, and, you know, it's not in a way the most patriotic system, you know, so you can have a system. Capitalism is very patriotic. <laughs> right, right. We're, we're, we're patriotic just because we're, we're capitalistic. But you could have a system where even if you are a, you know, let's say you're a graduate student, you have R01 funding and you have NSF funding and you graduate and then you go and you work for McKinsey. And now the question is, wow, you got all this federal funding, you got a PhD, and that enabled you to go and work for a consulting company and you know, figure out whether this pitch or that pitch book was the most profitable for this company or that company. You know, what's the benefit for the public in, in that case? I would, it's, it's very little, right? So you know, other countries, they will have kind of requirements that if you get federally funded education, you have to serve in this particular kind of capacity for a little while. America's really hands-off. So, you know, if you got federal funding and you knew what you were doing for that federal funding, the quid pro quo kind of ends there. And there's no, you know, we have a right to tell you what to do for a certain period of time in, in order to ensure that, you know, all of the public good that we uh, bestowed upon you is going to come back in some way to the, think, into the hands of the taxpayers. That's not really um, one of the kind of underlying philosophies. You, know, of you let the ex- give the excellent people a hand up, and then you let them out into the world and they'll just do great things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really, I would say it's trickle down. Like every, you know, it's really this trickle down philosophy. Like, if you, know, you if you didn't have NIH funded cancer research and you just like left cancer research to be funded in however other ways that it could be funded, well then maybe you wouldn't have the development of cancer drugs. Yeah, but I think I feel like I would be comfortable with the idea that okay, we federally fund researchers and they do a bit of research and then maybe they go off and work for a private company. A- I would feel like, okay, they're returning it by doing research if there was like a clearer path for that research being easily available. And if it has to go through corporations that are going to then charge a lot for it, it feels like that is like a weird roadblock in the availability of the research. Yeah. So, I mean, people who are like students who get, get grants and are being trained and get a PhD, and so they're in a sense federally funded directly to, to do the research that they're doing usually under the mentorship of, of some professor, right? Uh, the research they do is never sort of something that would be directly accessible to the public. And corporations will further develop it. And it seems like those corporations, in a sense, are the ones that are, are, are benefiting a lot from the research that gets done even within academia. But that is a good point that the, it does need to be further developed. You know, the, the corporation is adding value to the research by making it an actual product. 
you can ask, you know, are they adding enough value to justify prices, especially in something like the pharmaceutical industry? But yeah, the idea that, okay, you, you did the basic research as a federally funded person, now the taxpayers will benefit from having a product that incorporates that research, but there does need to be a little bit of like private industry legwork to, to make that possible. Yeah, there's really no like federal funding for get, going through all of these like FDA trials and you know getting the drug marketed and all this stuff. So you do see that there there is a the benefit to having that kind of industrial component. But for for you know the kinds of things that we do in in our capacity as undergraduate or as graduate researchers, we don't really grapple with these questions. I mean, our questions are more are the experiments that I want to do feasible and can I get the equipment that I need? And, you know, those things are, are really negotiated between universities completely in isolation of regards for the taxpayers or for, for corporations and what their benefits are. And so just to, to get a little bit of clarity on that, right? So we talked about the channel rhodopsin and how this channel rhodopsin um, construct can be put into these viruses and then sold back to the different PIs, and they can, uh, you know, then use it amongst themselves. So an, another route that that this can take is is you you can have an inventor who wants to sort of spin off their invention on their own kind of and have their own company that they direct. So Carl Dyseroth will probably not sell you a virus with channel rhodopsin, might give you like a unique new construct that if you're interested in it, you can have a little bit. Now there are other examples where you can have an inventor at a research university who comes up with something and that they create their, their own company. And the, the university will get the royalties, of course, at some percentage, but that, that in, inventor will create the company and they will have the exclusive right in many cases to use that invention, right? So in that case, you don't have maybe as much freedom to like shop around or maybe even freedom to see different ways that like, let's say UNC is putting it into these kinds of viruses and some of them are doing the things that you want, but you know, Penn is doing it like different viruses. And you know, if you, if you're at the kind of behest of like one company versus like these kinds of um, dispersed commercial opportunities, you might, you might as a researcher come up against like a very different set of hurdles. But I guess so like implicit in the background is this sort of fairly, you know, I don't know, free market, pro-free market perspective. I, I'm just trying to think, like, again, I mean, is the public, like, the, the people who paid the taxes originally, are they getting kind of shafted a little bit in terms of not getting the fruits of what they contributed to through their tax money at an affordable rate? Or I, I guess it's the idea, like, if a pharmaceutical company at some point produces some drug that was related to research, there's still, like, competition in that sector. And so, like, the idea is that by the time it, the by the time things get sold to the public again, there was like still what free market capitalism was taking effect and and people were being sold products at like a fair price. Is that is someone thinking through all of that? No, it's like a really it's like imagine that you have you know all these different people that Josh mentioned and they're all at a bargaining table and they're like, look, I'm the company, I'm gonna take this thing that is gonna fail like. 80% of the time, 
and I'm going to put time and energy and my funding into it and maybe turn it into something. How much of this, the pie do I get? And we're like, okay, well, we'll think about it. And the taxpayer is going to say, look, I'm going to like give some little bit of seed money investment and it's going to be doled out among like, a, you know, hundreds of different labs. And those, those labs, many of them won't succeed. Maybe one or two of them will. And even if I don't get this, the product of this like late stage development thing for free, I will have it in the world. Right. So, you know, I will be better off because if I had some kind of incurable disease previously and I paid tax money so that somebody could do basic research and then in 25 years there's a, you know. Yeah, I think this is precisely it. I yeah. think this, this is the idea that goes into it. But then the question is like, okay, but taxpayer, like you just paid that little bit of money and we, we want to know like why, why do you really think you're entitled to like, you know, 100% of the output of your funding of a bunch of different basic research. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, maybe if the government were much better at sort of figuring out where exactly to target the money, then you might be able to say like the taxpayer has more of a uh, right to get like a larger return back for that. But, you know, when you're like leaving it up to the government to... I mean, you're framing this so negatively, but I, I feel like there's there's an extent to which, I mean... Most scientists are happy with a broad range of science that's not all directly translational being funded. Right. So as a taxpayer, you have to know that that's what you're doing, right? So, and that this is the kind of existing debate right now is like, are taxpayers happy that they're funding basic research, which doesn't necessarily lead to the kinds of things that will... It doesn't lead directly, but... It right. leads indirectly through lots of basic research to something that can be applied. Yeah, but I think the taxpayers who expect that their their taxes are just going towards projects that will develop uh, drugs and medical applications, that's not really the right uh, alignment to have on on that that type of expenditure because it's not really you know necessarily what why it's it's being spent. Yeah, I agree. So are there any last pressing issues we need to get in about patent law and science? I mean, I think this, this discussion sort of touched on a lot of points and, and kind of covered much of the confusion we might have had in, in our previous discussion. Okay. Well, that was super informative, Joe. All right. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks much so for much. joining us. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Till next time. <laughs>